Hi, this is Jeff Ashkin in Los Angeles, California, with Roy Cole in Jersey, New Jersey, and Derek Kessler in Yokohama, Japan. And this is Coast to Coast to Coast, part two of our discussion on the greatest composers with our special guest, Kevin Blum. Kevin, you want to go again? Sure. So um, I'm, I'm just going chronologically with mine. Um, but uh, I think the next on the list, and it's, again, it's another one on the hit parade, but I think there are hit parades for a reason, is um, Beethoven. Um, good old Ludwig van. Um, he, uh, it, it's great if you listen, just listening to his symphonies, you can hear the shift from the classical period, which is more like Mozart, Haydn, very, you know, very kind of precise, prim and proper. It's it's beautiful, and there's a lot of beauty in that, but it's very um, controlled. Um, mm. And then it just kind of you could see throughout the course of Beethoven's career, he kind of drags the the you know, the sound of the day from that you know kind of prim and proper classical sound to this highly emotional and you know very lush romantic era sound. Um, to to me. Um, it's almost like you know when you're you know, kind of a, a a kid, you know, a lot of things are rules based. You know, this is what your parents say you should do, and you should do it. You've got your routine, um, and that's very fulfilling as a child. I feel like that's a lot of you know, the qualities that I see in the classical period. And then when you kind of become a, a teenager and an adult, you notice things are complicated, and there's strong emotions involved, um, and complicated emotions. And I think that you know that transition almost from you know, classical music um, to becoming more of that you know more complicated you know emotional kind of music uh, is 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 all Beethoven way. So um, you know, again, I think just if you have the time, you know, just to sit through and go through his symphonies, start with you know, one and then go to you know, five or six and then go to nine, and you can really feel that progression. Um, I will never forgive him for not writing a clarinet concerto, um, but uh, <laughs> otherwise, yeah, he's he's definitely one of the top of my list. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Fer Fer Elise is like the quintessential uh, seduction song. That that was like the first uh, like R and B love song. <laughs> I don't know if it was R and B, but it was definitely. <laughs> it, it was definitely meant to. It inspired to all future uh, R and B songs. Um, it, just to piggyback off of what Kevin said, and I, uh, I, I think Beethoven probably, if if Bach is the starting point of where um, music, Western music, really started to change, I think. Beethoven probably accelerated that change more than anyone else with, like Kevin said, if you listen to things from the earlier on in his career and later on in his career and see the difference and how he basically took every single rule that they, that was in place for composing a piece of music and broke it and broke it in multiple ways, many, many times over his career. And I've explored his music uh, very, very in depth. And it's very interesting to see that progression of how he took basically just every single rule and broke it. And I would say, um, if you listen to his 32nd piano sonata, there's something very interesting in there because um, in the middle of the piece, he starts playing what sounds like jazz. 
And uh, it was essentially about 70 years before jazz actually started as a genre, but he was already thinking about the same kind of musical qualities that would later come up. And that's just how, um, how prophetic he was and how influential he was, in my opinion. Uh, are you familiar with the work, Kevin? I, I, I'm not familiar with the 30-second sonata. I, I do have a question for you. I've, I've, I, I think I know the answer um, based on something that you said earlier, but which of his symphonies is your favorite? Six. I, I knew you were going to say six, and it's just that whole connection to the Vivaldi programmatic work kind of thing. Yeah. Beethoven's sixth, the yeah. role, he's doing that too with you know, the exactly. bird song and all of that. Thunder, yeah. Water and, and all. It's definitely you know, right in that same exactly. you know, kind, of, kind of genre. Oh, I was going to ask quickly what is your favorite of the uh, Beethoven movies about the dog, Beethoven? <laughs> Because <laughs> I believe I, there's been six of them as well. There's been six? Oh man, I'm way uh, at least mind. five. I'm looking it up now and it goes there's Beethoven's fifth. I'm not sure if there is any more after that. I think I stopped at five for with good cause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was, was, were they all were they all with Charles Grodin? Because I don't remember one with, without Charles Grodin. <laughs> Let's see. Let me look this up. He's course, just like the, great... the quintessential exasperated dad, right? <laughs> yeah. like... The great American actor Charles Grodin, who is now and criminally the... known as the guy from Beethoven. And the dad from Clifford, my favorite, one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> you know, speaking of, um, you know, things that I remember from, uh, from you know, growing up across the street from Derek, I do distinctly remember us not being able to get through Clifford because we were laughing too hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that movie. Jeff, you love it too, right? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I honestly, I'll maybe have to rewatch it, but I believe it has a 10% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> um, I will have to. Uh, I believe also, if you, if you look it up on Wikipedia, not that I have, but if you do, I believe you will note that it says. That it has a cult following. Uh, okay, let's. See. I'm not did the only one who Did you make that edit on Wikipedia? I did not make that edit, but I. <laughs> I, I would put very, it. Uh, it was heartwarming for me to see. I wouldn't put it past you, actually, to go back to Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> By so the way, all... Charles Charles Grodin was in the first two Beethovens, and then uh, is a different actor. Check it out. Yeah, he didn't want to get typecast, so. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Hi, Derek. Ed. All right. Um, well, so Kevin, you said you're doing yours in chronological order. Yeah. All right. In that case, I think it's safe for me to go on to my second, which my second choice was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Um, so out of left field. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, sorry for sounding cliche. Um, I think a lot of people would choose Mozart. Um, as their favorite composer, and I am one of them. I consider him my favorite. Um, I wouldn't say definitively that he's the best, um, because you know Bach and Beethoven are pretty hard to argue with. But um, I just there's there's something um, so magical about the quality of the music that he writes. There's something so timeless about the melodies that he writes, and uh, 
it's also pretty mind-boggling to think, you know, the age that he started composing, he wrote his first symphony. I mean, he started composing when he was, I believe, around five. And then he wrote his first symphony when I believe he was nine and his first opera when he was 11, I want to say. And, um, you know, dying at the age of 36, right? 35, 36? 35, I think. 35, right, yeah, right before his 36th birthday. So anyway, he didn't, he doesn't have that long of a lifespan. Um, but I think in that short period of time, he composed more than 600 pieces of music. And not only is there a lot, not, not only is there quantity, but there's quality as well. And I think it's, it's very, the amount of composers, or even if you want to look at songwriters of popular music, the amount of uh, musical artists that have created a lot, both in quantity and in quality, especially to the extent that um, Mozart did, are very few and far in between. Um, I think, you know, it's it, it comes every maybe only 100 years or so where you get someone that is so prolific, but also so... Um, creative as well and i think his music not only does it um kind of follow the traditions of the time he kind of absorbs the traditions improves upon them you know in other words he's making music that in my opinion is of better quality than what else was being composed at the time and then also he pushes the genre forward with some influences and some changes of his own that he he makes and i think um, there's just something so timeless about his music that you can't really have a classical conversation and not mention him. So, um, but again, he also just happens to be my personal favorite. Um, I really like his operas. I really like his piano concertos. Um, you know, pretty much everything he's composed, I would consider is a masterpiece. And there's just so much of it. So he's. He's my number number one, but my you know the second person I was going to talk about. Uh, I, this was the one I said a thousand percent. You're going to say I, I have, I have <laughs> a feeling. So, and we have to. I, I can't not mention the movie about Mozart, Amadeus, which is a fantastic movie. If anyone's interested in in Mozart and uh, his rival Salieri, also was a actually has been has been. Uh, I think his work has been reviewed as. It's actually not as bad as they are bad, but I think that uh, his work actually has some merit. I mean, would you like to speak to that, or what do you think, Salieri? I mean, well, so for, I think that movie is, is great, but it's it's pretty pretty fictional. You know, his music course, historians yeah. um, you know, don't uh, really have um, you know kind things to say about the movie as far as accuracy goes, but it is a very entertaining and <laughs> yeah, very movie, fun yeah. movie. Yeah, 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 it's a great movie. Um, no, I... I um, yeah, I'm gonna kind of deviate from the general um, you know, thoughts on Mozart. I don't even think that he's my favorite classical era composer. Um, I think for that, I'm I, I'm Team Haydn, um, <laughs> and I was even um, I think he's just he's got a lot of the you know, classical elements of um, Mozart, but for lack of like a better technical term, I think he's just he, his music's more fun <laughs> it's more it's less less put together i think he's yeah 
tending, you know, not not nearly you know, the kind of the depth of emotion in, as as Beethoven, but you know, I to me, uh, you're listening to a piece by Mozart and you listen to a piece by Haydn. The one that kind of like gets you dancing in your seat a little is probably Haydn. So I actually prefer oh. for, for him to Mozart. Yeah, well, <laughs> Haydn, Haydn is uh, interesting. He's got a lot of interesting uh, symphonies. Um, like, I particularly like the Surprise Symphony and the Disappearing Symphony. Are you familiar with those? Oh, yeah, those are, those are great ones. I like also the Clock is also a really, a really fun one. Which one? Sorry. The Clock. Know. It's the clock. It's like um, uh, it was one hundred one or one hundred three, some somewhere in there. It's also pretty prolific, by the way, over a hundred symphonies. Yeah, um, but that's that, that's a good one too. The drum roll symphony is really good. Yeah, he's just blast. There's also a great video um, YouTube of Leonard Bernstein conducting um, the fourth movement of I. One of the symphonies, I'm, I'm blanking on which one at the moment, but he pretty much just starts them and conducts the whole orchestra just by making facial expressions and like moving his eyebrows. And it's, it's phenomenal. So definitely worth, if, if we, can, if we can, can put links in here, that's a, a one that I'd find and share. We'll definitely do. We, well, I definitely want to post about this. We'll, we'll put links in because I, 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 I'm curious about this one myself. I didn't know about that. So what Kevin um, and I are talking about, for those who are less familiar with Haydn's work, is that he did create over 100 symphonies. And among them, he kind of has these practical jokes built into some of them. Like the one I described, the Surprise Symphony. Basically, he was writing symphonies. And then at one point, he saw that during some of the performances of his symphonies, he noticed people falling asleep during the symphony. So what he did was he went back to his house he wrote a symphony that got really, really quiet, and then all of a sudden got really loud midway through to just kind of wake everyone up. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, he said the classical music's first troll. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I think actually Haydn, so Haydn lives, I, I'm just pulling that right, he lived for a long time for that time period, he lived for over mm -hmm. 70 years. So he mm -hmm. actually, interestingly, he was both kind of friendly with, um, Mozart, and he also, I believe, taught Beethoven. So oh. he kind of spans that difference, um, you know, kind of between them a little bit. What they're talking mm -hmm. about, besides music, of course. A unique, a uh, uh, funny fact, not funny, it's kind of sad, actually, but uh, an interesting fact about the relationship between Haydn and Mozart is that, you know, Mozart having died so young, Haydn having lived so long, there is a, an anecdote where Mozart, um, the last time he visited Haydn, uh, he, he visited his house. Uh, they talked. Haydn at the time was very sick. And uh, basically, when, as he was leaving, Mozart said, uh, you know, goodbye, Papa Haydn. That's what he called him. You know, this is going to be the last time I see you. And he was right because actually Mozart ended up dying. Haydn recovered. <laughs> Mozart died soon after. And it was the last time that they saw each other. Plot twist. Roy, do you want to add anyone before we uh, move on to Kevin? I actually I had a. Uh, oh, unless he. I had a Salieri as my number one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> a little surprised to see Mozart. Underrated. You guys, top spot. Underground. Yeah. yeah, one of the underground composers of the classical era. All right. And so since we're going, um, I might be seeing a, a little bit of a theme here to how I'm. I'm picking these great composers. You know, one is kind of taking, you know, building you know, 
a, a foundation with Bach, and then you've got kind of expanding that foundation and adding emotion uh, beyond what had been seen before into it with Beethoven. My next guy, my number three, and probably honestly of the three of the, that, I'm, that I'm talking about today, the one who I listen to the most is the one who really just completely threw all the rules out of the window, and that's Igor Stravinsky. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Igor Stravinsky, if you listen to, uh, I'd say the gateway drug for Igor Stravinsky is to listen to Firebird. Um, mm. you, know, you see a lot here, a lot of elements of, um, you know, romantic music and, you know, kind of the emotive kind of, but then you get into some really, really crazy. And he really, you know, kind of did away with this whole idea of you need to have chord progressions that resolve in a certain way and that you need to have melodies, period. You know, some of the things, if you listen to The Rite of Spring, some of it is not even, you know, not even melodic in any sort of way it's you know it's the the sound the raw you know emotion what he's trying to get across so yeah any of his ballets um you know firebird rite of spring petrushka they're all absolutely phenomenal and they pretty much you know just he pretty much just broke all the rules that had happened you know for centuries everyone was building off of bach and i think more or less until stravinsky there's some other other composers that were kind of experimenting as well, but he's kind of the most prolific, well-known, and most influential one of those. So I, I happen to love Stravinsky's work. Um, and he also had a, a bit of a sense of humor as well. Um, you know, speaking of, I guess we were talking about how you know, Haydn had that sense of humor. Um, one of my favorite Stravinsky quotes is he says, great composers don't borrow, they steal. Um, about, you know, people you know, really using other composers' work in, as part of their own. Um, and then my personal favorite Stravinsky story was, so The Rite of Spring, um, you know, he wrote the music to that. That was a ballet, Bruce, um, a ballet company. And he went and he played it on the piano, what he was writing for, I believe it was for um, Sergei Diaghilev, who the, the producer. And you know, there's a part in The Rite of Spring um, you know, where it's just... You know, it's a rhythm. It's a rhythm. There's not really a chord per se. It's very dissonant. It's just bum 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 bum. And um, Diaghilev interrupts. So so how long does this go for? Stravinsky says the whole time. <laughs> so um, yeah, he had that had that little bit of sense of humor to him as well. But I think again, <laughs> you know, modern classical music started with Stravinsky, um, and he you know, was was the one to really break all of the rules that came before him. So I think that that to me is what makes him great. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, the, the premiere of the Rite of Spring was so ahead of its time that it actually caused a riot during the performance. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that was definitely part of, uh, the premiere. It was, people hated yeah. it. Um, but yeah, you know, we we talking. We know we know Stravinsky now. But we don't know the names of the people who hated it. <laughs> Good point. Um, all right, uh, I guess I'll go to my number three now. Anyway, I, my third choice is Nobuo Uematsu, essentially known as the father of video game music. Um, I think he kind of did what um, Jeff was saying. John Williams did for the music of film, you could say that 
you know, the equivalent, I would equate that to uh, Nobu Uematsu in the realm of video game music. Um, so again, not to brag, but kind of still bragging. Um, I did have a chance to go to his house and have a conversation with him a couple years ago. And uh, it was very interesting. I got a lot of insight into his composition method. And, um, you know, he started as a composer at the time of 8-bit gaming. So during the time, you know, when Nintendo was um, on the scene and being very limited with what he could do, he used the sound, the, the capabilities of the sound chips that were available to create uh, what's known as, you know, 8-bit music, or maybe you'd refer to it as chip tone. Um, but uh, still, you know, he, he had, I think he's a genius composer. And I think he was doing what he could with the technology that was available to him at the time to create some very beautiful melodies, which would only evolve as the Final Fantasy series in particular evolved through the course of, you know, hardware evolving, going from Nintendo to Super Nintendo to PlayStation, PlayStation 2, etc. And, you know, the, the sound quality of the games getting better and also the technology of what you can express as far as music within a video game also getting better. I think that um, allowed people to understand the more and more about um, his creativity as a composer. So just a little anecdote about how I feel his music uh, is so diverse. And then also going back to what Kevin and I were talking about, about putting pictures in your head uh, with sound. Um, so he, obviously, his goal is to create a, a feeling or to evoke certain uh, emotions during a scene of what you're watching in a video game. And I think when I was, you know, going through my phase of exploring video game music and exploring video games, and I, I really liked the soundtrack to Final Fantasy VI, I liked the soundtrack to Final Fantasy VII and VIII, and I really liked the soundtrack to Final Fantasy X. Um, and for some reason, Final Fantasy IX never really resonated with me so much until... so. Um, something happened, which was Final Fantasy IX takes place kind of more within a medieval setting, uh, whereas some of the others take place kind of in a dystopian future type of setting. So obviously the, the sound tones that you're going to be getting in are going to be very different. But, you know, IX going back to kind of this medieval type um, pre-technology setting. I remember um, I went to the Getty Center in Los Angeles and I was listening to music I had my headphones on listening to music while I was looking at these paintings and I was in this room with all of these medieval um, works from, you know, 16th century Europe. And I happened to, you know, this, the next sound that came up on my iPod was a piece from Final Fantasy IX, one that I didn't really consider to be my favorite. And for some reason, it just resonated so well with the pieces that I was looking at. And it was just like, my goodness, this is just, it's making the experience of being in this room with these works of art that are hundreds of years old so much more intense and bringing them alive, making me feel like I'm like really right there with them. And so I went back home and I, I did some research and I found out, you know, when he composed Final Fantasy IX soundtrack, what he did, he actually, uh, Square, the company, um, sent him to Europe and he visited a lot of ancient castles and ancient churches to get inspiration for what he was going to compose for nine. And then he went back to Japan and he wrote the, the soundtrack based on those 
those things that he saw while he was in Europe. And, and without having knowing that fact that he had done that before composed the music, I still was able to feel that that's what he was composing um, just by looking at the same type of, of pictures and imagery that he was probably looking at when he composed it. And I just thought that was really cool. And it gave an idea of how he can take a, a theme or a feeling or an image and put that into music and impart that same thing into the listener without the listener even having to know you know where that inspiration came from you still get that same inspiration uh just by listening to it and i think it just serves as an example to show how how diverse he is but also how creative he can be with with the tones that he creates it's not the kind of music that um you hear from like um you know bach or beethoven it's not like that traditionally um conceived of as you know what is traditional classical music but but i think there's a lot more to video game music than a lot of the mainstream gives it credit for. I think it's, I think there's a lot more to it. And I, I really just, among that, I think that Uematsu is by far the most creative and particularly my favorite. Yeah. I, I don't think it can be you know, overstated how difficult it is to write eight bit music. I mean, that, that was essentially three sounds, like a high sound, a low sound and a percussion and um, mm-hmm. no choice of instruments, no real choice of sonority. It's, 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 you know, the, the sound is such that it doesn't really sound good together as a chord. Um, so it's really, it's like trying to paint you know, a painting with, with three fingers on your left hand. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really uh, unbelievably difficult. And people like Omatsu and Koji Kondo are just un- unbelievable that they can put together such memorable music with you know such you know such a constraints on what they can work with mm. yeah sure. well, for me can anyone hear me okay yes yep still good okay, okay good. and i'm on the edge of my seat to, to know what you're going to pick for your third <laughs> could be anything right. wait for it neo morcone oh uh, i know big surprise um but um no ennio morcone um is also obviously a uh, movie composer. And what I love about his work is not only the diversity of it, also the texture of it. There's different types of instruments that I don't, I've looked a lot into film scoring and he was very experimental in his scores. And I've tried to see if other composers came before him and did the things that he was doing, but I've not found that. But uh, with Morricone, I think a lot of people would know his famous Good, the Bad, and the Ugly score. It's mm. the famous Western score that begins with a whistle. That's the, that's the worst, <laughs> that's the worst <laughs> impression I've ever heard. <laughs> anyway, can't even do it. Anyway, of course, a lot of the spaghetti Westerns, uh, i.e. meaning the Westerns that were made from Italian companies that were set in the American West, uh, a fistful of dollars, then uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, of course, the 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 uh, Sergio Leone movies. Um, what's interesting about his work, and I mentioned earlier about John Williams, about him elevating the uh, the images you see on the screen. Uh, actually, I came to Morricone's work without having seen the movies that he had scored. My uh, my mom had his music. One of the one of the movie soundtracks she'd play a lot while I was growing up, which is so funny because I didn't see the movie up until teenage years was the untouchables uh which is about um uh Ness going after al capone and that particular soundtrack 
I would just hear a lot and the music would actually give me a sense of what I was was going on of course in the movie but it wasn't it was it was almost almost didn't just elevate it it almost stood on its own without I didn't really need the movie in fact no joke I like the music more than the movie um it's just so good and uh I mean I could go off a laundry list of his uh the thing the mission mission to mars Bugsy, disclosure I mean, a lot of those movies I'm not even a huge fan of. I like the music, though. Basically, I like the variety of his music. I like the fact that it stands on its own. I like the fact that his compositions seem to start very softly and then get really big and then softly again. The experimental nature of it. And I think that he's definitely somebody that a lot of people, I think, in America don't know, but don't know his name. I definitely know. I definitely think they know his music without realizing it. I'll go along with a lot of composers, of course, especially with him. I think um, if you played some of his music, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, I love that score. Who did that?" And he'd be like, "Oh, that's Morricone." So, I, he's not. He's not John Williams, and I. But I have to give him. I have to give you know him props because definitely his work has led me to see more of Italian cinema that I wouldn't have seen. I'm attached to it. I'm like, oh. If I hadn't gone to film school and, and I just saw any of Morricone's name attached to a film, I'd be more inclined to watch it. That's how impressed I am with his work. I just want to add that my favorite piece that he composed is not one of his most well-known pieces, but I love the overture to The Hateful Eight. Yeah, I love, I love that I too. Love that that. Yeah, and it really... Um, it, it really highlights what Jeff just said about starting very subtle and then gradually building up and painting a picture in your mind. And, you know, there, Jeff, we saw that movie together in the theater. Um, and I remember, you know, the movie takes place in this freezing cold, barren um, part of Wyoming in, you know, a uh, settler period, you know, America. And it just, there's that sense of cold desolation that just comes across with, with the first few notes and continues throughout that sense of uh, it, it kind of moves into a sense of ominousness and hatred. And um, I think, I think it's just such a beautiful piece that, that overture. I remember seeing that movie with you, Jeff, and then going home and buying that soundtrack. And I, I just really love that from, from him. Yeah. I remember that when we saw it, they actually played, I believe the sound, the, theme in isolation and then the movie started i think they did yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i remember yeah. that was that's pretty incredible jeff did you know that um uh there's a N nintendo game the untouchables like they made a nintendo oh i did not know that version of the of the i would love to hear yeah so you can hear morricone in chip tone <laughs> i'm impressed by that what i do is just you know, some quick, quick hits for um, some composers who I, I happen to love. You know, they may not have the influence as the ones I've already talked about, but I think they're ones that, unless you're a hardcore classical music junkie, you probably haven't heard of. Um, so there's three of them that I want to talk about. One is Percy Granger. Um, he's an Australian-born composer who lived in the U.S. Um, he really focused a lot on folk music, like English and Australian music and setting those for wind band and wind ensemble the time military band but as you know the the genre grew you know 
you know, Sousa marches and, and parades to being a real kind of alternative classical ensemble. Um, you know, Granger's music, um, the way he kind of sets instruments off of one another, orchestration that he gets from wind, just uh, pretty much unparalleled. Gorgeous. So if, if you do want to listen to Percy Granger, I would start with uh, Lincolnshire Posey, which is probably his best known. Um, and again, it's it's these folk songs and very simple songs, and they kind of repeat, but the way that you know, it differs each time you know the, the melody comes in is just unique. And it, I, I and um, when I was playing you know, in high school, college, and groups, so, yeah, you know, I always loved playing his music. Cool. Uh, another one um, is John Adam, um, who not the president or the miniseries, uh, or actually there's another classical composer, John Luther Adams, not him either, but John Adams, just John Adams. He's um, a, a contemporary composer, probably in his 60s or 70s now, um, and he's what um, you know. There's a, a big push, uh, actually a push, a big um, you know, movement in the, the earlier in. 20th century, the mid-century, um, so what was called minimalism. People like Steve Reich, and um, and like it's really taking you know, kind of again stripping away the harm. We're going to have this instrument play this note for three minutes, and then we're going to add one note to it and play it for another five minutes. And it's really you know, by listening to it, you get to um, you know, examine all sides of small pieces, um, small snippets of music. Um, what John Adams did was he kind of took that very bare bones, sparse, you know, minimalist sound, and he added romantic, um, you know, kind of chords and, and passion to it. So um, for, for me, it combines the best of this kind of intellectual experiment that is minimalism. So I'd say the best way to start with him is uh, is a piece called Short Ride in a Fast Machine. Um, I first heard that, um, I hadn't even heard of the composer before, but I first heard that um, when the London Symphony Orchestra, Stetson University, it just just blew me away. That's definitely one that's worth listening to. Um, short and- short ride in a fast machine is uh, also a really good porno. If uh, you're into that, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it's a great porno title, but John Adams is a horrible porn star. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, and then the third guy, who's the youngest person on, also contemporary composer, he's named Andy Akiho. Um, he's about forty years old, um, and he's kind of the best uh, encapsulation of what the current trend in classical music is, which is kind of blurring genres and cultures. You know, for, for hundreds of years, Western classical music is really just that. It's, you know, Europe, America, a little bit of Russia, um, and that kind of tradition. Um, and he really, you know, right now, the take you know, bits from you know, East Asian music and bits from African music. And what Andy Akiho does is he takes modern classical music and combines it with Caribbean sounds. He actually, he's a percussionist, but his, um, you know, his uh, you know, instrument that he plays the most is steel drums, these, you know, kind of Caribbean sounds with you know, avant-garde music. So um, I'd say the way to get started with him is, is a piece called it's No One to No One. It's like no, like, as in the opposite of yes, no one to no is in KW. Um, 
And it's for a very weird ensemble with percussion and steel drums and a vocalist. Um, and it's just, it's, he's phenomenal. And I think he's one of the um, composers writing in that, you know, multi-cultural you know, blend kind of style. And um, I got a bolt because uh, talking about music, um, our, our neighbors um, and I have been playing music at pretty much every night since um, you know, the COVID quarantine started as like a thank you to essential workers. And it starts in three minutes, so I got to go. But thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for joining, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, thank, yeah you. thank you, Kevin. Anytime. All right, All take right. care, guys. You too, man. Later. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Let us know if there's a topic you want us to cover by sending us a message at coast to coast to coast podcast at gmail.com. That's coast the number two, coast the number two, and then coast podcast gmail.com.